Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Ed Al, the podcast about qualitative. I said the podcast about qualitative research. Then that might be true. Yeah. Is is it? Haven't checked. I'm Sam. Who are you? And I'm, Mac- I'm Macarthur. <laughs> so, and uh, today we're going to be talking about. Uh, we've got one article to talk about. We're keeping things simple. We've got an article by David Silverman about um, interviewing and um, a bit of a discussion about why we like to do interviews so much in, in qualitative research and uh, certainly gave me a lot to think about as someone who has blithely conducted a bunch of interviews recently and is at the moment trying to uh, trying to analyze them. Um, but uh, first of all, how, how you doing, MacArthur? How's life? What's, how's life where you are? Life is good. Life is, is confusing and chaotic yep. and full of... Mm-hmm. Uh, Weird and wonderful things right now, Sam. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> that sounds that sounds enigmatic, and that's and that's fine. <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm um, yeah, basically, basically just trying to write my thesis at the moment. That's the point I'm at. I've been I've been hammering out my theoretical framework chapter. I hammered out a methodology chapter. I'm and I'm working on my. Uh, data analysis slash results chapters at the moment. I'm at this point where I'm sort of schmooshing together a draft of each chapter that looks kind of okay, and then in my head saying that's done and moving on to the next one. And I know there's going to be a come a point where I have to go back to the beginning and realize none of these drafts are as far forward as I had decided to hope they were, and there'll be a lot of uh, touching up work to do. Um, but... That's all right. We're making progress. Yeah, it um, sounds like a nice phase to be in. Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's a very simple phase. It's basically just me getting up each day and sitting down at the laptop and continuing mm. on with the one the one task. And yeah, uh, That's schmooshing. Yeah, yeah. Schmooshing it all together. That's how I like to sum up the process of qualitative research. Um, that would probably annoy David Silverman. Um, so... Before we get started, I had another. I had a little segment I thought we could start doing. Let's do it. An- another fun segment. You know, we used to do Procrastinator's Corner. Yep, that was fun. Were... That was fun. Crown <laughs> favorite. We talk fan about... favorite, yeah. Yep, fan favorite. When we talk about ways in which we are procrastinating. Uh, obviously, um, at a certain point, you and I just stopped procrastinating, so we had to stop that Clearly. segment because there was no point. You know, it was just... We, we, we ran out of material. Was, you know, that's what comes from, you know, the apprenticeship of a PhD. You eventually, by year two or three, you learn how to just never procrastinate and to just be productive at all moments of the day. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So uh, so we had to rest that one. But I've got a, a, a new one. It's called the Predatory Publishing Corner. Ba-bum. Now, I am very interested in predatory publishing and the whole industry. It's a notorious phenomenon in the academic circles. Yeah, I find I'm I'm fascinated about it and I've always like harbored this goal this this idea of doing a sort of investigative journalism story about it and trying to find the people who are doing it. Like I always wonder about who it is that's sending the emails. Sometimes they actually do conferences. There will be a predatory publishing conference and there's stories of people turning up to this, you know, hotel lobby somewhere yeah. and there's like eight other people and a table with some leaflets on it and it's just awful. Uh, but they've flown to other cities for it because they didn't realize. Um, so I guess very briefly for anyone who's completely unaware of what we're uh, talking about, there was a very large industry of... Um, people who run kind of sham journals or sham academic or scientific organizations and they will um, uh, el- 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 try to get people to se- to send in papers to, I guess people I might either pay a fee to have their paper in the journal or somehow they make money out of um, putting out these, these articles some other way. But it's all, it's all complete nonsense. Some of them are quite easy to spot. Some of them... Ever so slightly less easy to spot. Yeah. I get a lot of predatory publishing emails. Do you really? Yeah, I have a folder for them, and um, I've stopped. I stopped about a year ago. I stopped deleting them and started just putting them all in this folder. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I get quite a lot of them is because I keep replying to them. 
<laughs> they're they're lured. Every so often, I just like sort of stoke the fire a little bit, and I just yeah. want to try and like mix my email address in amongst their lists, so they'll keep sending me stuff. Uh-huh. This is all in my head. This is all background for the, you know, the, the, just for the, the, joy uh, the story I would do. Uh-huh. Um, so I thought maybe every so often I could, I could give you a good example of some of the ones I get. Please do. Um, so I've got I've got uh, I received a good one pretty uh, pretty recently. So and I don't want this to be um, making fun of someone who has English as a second language corner. You know, I don't want it to just right. be that. Although that is a funny aspect of it. Um, what I find funny about it is sometimes you know the English is not great, and that's right. fine. Some people's English isn't great, but it, it is interesting that despite their English being so poor, they're still trying to pull off this scam. Right. Well, I and mean that's the telltale f- sign of most internet scams. Yeah. Is it's like ah oh, okay. Yeah. And that's I'm not like, what that word wherever means. you are. <laughs> Yeah, like lots of people in the world speak English. Is there no one where you are who can speak some good English just to write this email for you to send it? Just copy-paste someone else. Anyway, so with with that caveat, here we go. Um, so the the uh, the blah, blah, blah. the subject line, exploration of medical research. Dear Dr. Samuel Brookfield. Ooh, see, they lead like strong. Them. Yeah, they got you on yeah, side. I get, I get called doctor and professor quite a lot in these emails. Incredible wishes from CPQ Medicine! Exclamation mark. And then they just go into explain what their email is about. Um, medicine encompasses a variety of healthcare practices evolved to maintain and restore health by prevention and treatment of illness. No, no argument here. Yeah. Uh, coming across your skills and expertise, well, thanks very much. We would like to write this letter on behalf of CPQ Medicine, publishing articles in all the related arenas. Um, Please catch a glimpse at, and there's a link to their journal, so we're going to get to that, because that's quite exciting. Um, journal features. Immediate response towards the articles receives. Accepts papers from all areas of medicine, capital M. Prompt peer review and decisions upon papers. Comprehensive review through editors and reviewers with proficiency in the associated field. Grant a publication certificate to the authors. Now, this sounds better than most real journals so far, if that, all, if that really is prompt. So... Um, and that's yours truly, Miss Jeanette Eleanor. And so then I clicked through, and then you come to what is called cientperiodique.com. C-I-E-N-T period I-Q-U-E dot com. And I was immediately intrigued by the blog uh, heading on their website. And going through that, they've just got a few examples of... Um, uh, papers that they've published and the one I liked the most was called Revisiting What Might Save Life of Cancer Patients Actually <laughs> Actually um, So then if you click through into that um, it's uh, it's a this is supposedly from someone in the Netherlands and you can download the whole thing as a PDF so obviously I did that um, and I thought I'd just go through a little bit of the the paper. It's not it's it's not very long. The I would say we're looking at about four or five hundred words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> cancer patients' five year survival chance is still, after a century research and development, do not change significantly as infectious diseases did. How Medici might increase. 5YSC, 5-year survival chance, is not elucidated yet. Recently, I introduced Death Triangle Machinery, DTM, which might play a pivotal role in accelerating FYSC toward increased morbidity and mortality rate in the last years. I don't know how much of this to read. Then it gets, then it gets a little bit technical. I mean, we're not sci- we're not scientists in MacArthur. Uh, I mean, this is a qualitative research project. But yeah. then, uh, Death but Triangle Machinery think, is my next band name. Yeah, you know... I'm no expert in death triangle machinery, so I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that to the experts. But I th- maybe we'll just cut to the last paragraph. Taken together, soft and hard solid cancers and their related DTM are remaining leading death causes, which both results in too high costs and too much pain for patients and their relatives. So true. In the tw- in the twenty first century, so it's twenty one with th. In the twenty first century, 
One might expect from the policymakers that accelerate merely the study groups and their model systems which have shown positive influence to unravel-slash-halting all kinds of cancerogenous processes in the last decade and not older-slash-others. This kind of financial approaches might stimulate novel idea and alternatives compared to old-fashioned ones. Who knows? Might affect also... <laughs> cancerogenous is my next band name. Yeah, I like cancerogenous. Who knows? Might affect also the FYSE of cancer patients as well. And that's the, and, and, and that's the paper. So that's right. it seems to check out. Um, so I, I love this stuff. And, um, yeah, well, hey, so, you, yeah. it's all about them publication numbers. Exactly. Sometimes I think about sending something in and just see. Still counts. Still yeah, counts. Yeah. And then What's putting that, brilliant when, and you're, beautiful. when you're graduating, it's like, how many papers did you publish as yeah. part of this PhD? Just put 20 on there. Yeah, Don't look 400 them up. words Don't look in poor English. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The beautiful and fascinating thing about predatory publishing scams is that they work because the official publishing machinery of the academic institution is set up in such a similar way uh, mm. but they're just big business backing it up and you know they have histories and legacies of esteem and quality uh, assurance measures yeah but they many of them still operate at a financial um, position where the brunt of the cost is on the academic and the profit oh, yeah. is in the pockets of the publishers. And so mm. what I feel... So who's the real villain, I guess, is what well, we're saying. What I, what I feel is that, you know, there's small startup scams of predatory publishing have noticed the business model of the professional publishing, you know, um, sector and has recognized it truthfully for the money grab that it often is and has says, uh, said to himself, well, I want in on this action. And mm-hmm. it plays into the pitfalls and the, um, the anxieties of early career researchers, PhD students that are just trying to get their publication numbers up, trying to enter the yeah. field, trying to play the game. that must be, yeah, a lot of it. Because I wonder how, how it works. Yeah. But are, am I just seeing bad examples of it? Are there much more efficient examples? I don't know. Or, yeah, a lot of it must be people who are maybe inexperienced and there is that desperation to publish. Yeah. And so things just being sent out and then they... Yeah, some, some of them are, are, are crazy. They just will get on a university library, get a whole bunch of papers and then bind it and call it a book. <laughs> and just, <laughs> just send that out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. There's um But yeah, some some of them are like multi million dollar companies. Yeah. Um yeah. and I was I was looking into it and that sometimes people get to talk to the people in charge and they're like, No, it's it's fine, it's legit. Mm. We're just we're just an academic publishing company. What are you talking about? It's like no, conferences it's that hit up uh abstract submissions for a fee. So like you have to pay fifty bucks to submit yes. an abstract I saw for that possible recently you know, inclusion and invite yeah. tea to this conference. And it's like, well, you know. That would drive me insane. That's like, you know, how many abstracts are you going to get? Everyone's going to pay you some money. You're going to host mm. how many of them? 10%? 20%? What's what's your numbers yeah. here? What's your, what's your overheads? What's your profits? I guess that's them thinking they don't want to have to plow through a bunch of rubbish abstracts. Yeah, sure. So only... They only want to get abstracts from people who are legit and also rich. Or, I guess. Uh, you know, ECR or PhD students that aren't quite, you know, savvy with the lay of the land and are just think trying it, to enter in whatever possible ways open to them and they're like oh fifty dollars abstract maybe this is my chance to meet some people network get my work out there i'm going to go for it and so you mm. know all kinds of motivations enter the publishing arena and it is that yeah. very i've never thought that set up and system that the predatory journals um prey upon hence the predatory mm. in the uh, in the name 
Yeah, yeah. The prey must be vulnerable for yeah. the predator to be able to attack. Um, so, yeah, so that's Predator Publishing Corner. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. I'll have... Um, I Sometimes they keep asking me for papers, so then I just email them back and ask them a load of questions about their journal and their <laughs> yeah. board and stuff and just to see what they say. So there's lots of good stuff there. Great. So uh, Look forward to hearing so, more of that. Listen out next time. Okay, so now moving on to... The main item on the agenda, we've got um, an article from the journal Qualitative Research that came out in 2017, and this is um, by David Silverman from the universe, from Goldsmiths University of London. And so the title of the paper is How Was It For You? The Interview Society and the Irresistible Rise of the Brackets Poorly Analyzed Interview. So, provocative title there. Indeed. MacArthur, I think we can agree. I think. Um, he's How was it some for buttons. you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was very interested to. Um, I was interested to read this paper. I was very interested to talk about it once I'd read it, but also because um, David Silverman actually came to my university a couple of weeks ago and I got to hear him give a couple of lectures. So, it was really interesting to get to. Um, see him speak and he's talked about some of the things that are in this article and in um, a couple of his books that I've been referring to as well okay, and um, a, a lot of a lot of food for thought I guess we'll just get into it I'll, yeah should we do should, the old should, abstract read and then um, give we'll it do some the thoughts? abstract read okay cue the music <clears throat> Atkinson and Silverman's 1997, depiction of the interview society analysed the dominance of interview studies that seek to elicit respondents' experiences and perceptions. Their article showed that this vocabulary is deeply problematic, assuming an over-rationalistic account of behaviour and a direct link between the language of someone's accounts and their past and present psychic states. In this article, using a constructionist approach, I developed these ideas by asking what sort of data are we trying to retrieve through interviews, i.e. what do interviews reveal? I go on to examine and discount the claimed intellectual auspices for most interview studies and the way in which interview data are usually analysed. I conclude by showing how the reliability of interview transcripts can be improved and the analysis of interview data made more robust. Right on. Auspices. So, That's a fun word. Yeah, good use of auspices. Mm. Um, so as someone who's done a bunch of interviews in their PhD and you as someone who is Will going doing. to be doing some interviews, um, this obviously seems uh, pretty pretty damn relevant. relevant. Pretty and he's, he's bouncing it off this paper he wrote with um, Atkinson about, well, about 20 years ago. Um, where is it, it? That's an interesting paper to look at, actually, where they are using um, uh, Milan Kundera novel as an example of uh, postmodern, as 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 an example of what the postmodern self is now. And where does that happen? I missed that part. That, this is the uh, the original article. So oh, okay, says okay. The the 1997 article, right? Okay. Yeah, so and he's sort of developing the ideas from that in, in into this article. Yeah, so they're referring to immortality by Milan Kundera as a sort of uh, you know creative or artistic representation of the of the postmodern self, and contrasting that against a sort of uh, I guess modernist or romantic idea of the self, which is implicit in implicit in the kind of uh, I guess investigation a qualitative interview is often trying to do. Um, and so I guess we should probably try and explain that a little bit so people have an idea for people who who haven't read the article I'm sure most people have I'm sure most people had a look at the episode description saw the article clicked the link they've read it and now they've come to listen to the episode of course Uh, that's that's obviously the best way to do it but um, I think how how do you sum it up he's basically um, pointing out the maybe over simplistic conclusions that are frequently drawn from qualitative interview studies where what people describe as their uh, experience or perceptions are maybe sort of uh, 
easily accepted as an accurate representation of what their um, perceptions and experiences are and I guess leaves out a lot of the other potential data that is being presented in the form of an interview. Was that your was that your perception? Yeah, no, I think there's a couple or of experience. Things. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on, and I can see why this is a worthwhile, relevant area to be digging into uh, whilst you're, you know, writing up your results, but also ahead of myself conducting some interviews because it's like, well, what kind of data does interviews create, provide? Mm. Uh, what is that data then used to um, support? And this can be done in better or worse ways. And I think the cases that this paper is arguing against are the kinds that will, you know, isolate a few sentences um, and then just throw it into some theory or observations or portrayals mm. of a situation by the researcher and these snippets of quotes are just used to, uh, you know, uh, confirm what it is they've been talking about. And so when, um, when that kind of practice is the norm for a science, such as qualitative research, you're limiting both the interpretation of the data that you've made as well as narrowing or co-opting the uh, the results to, to you know depending how you use it to in ways that they may not necessarily have uh, been developed or contributed for um, that was my understanding of it and mm. the, so they speak to the um, the relational context of an interview, how the interviewer themselves is bringing, you know, the other half of the conversation and the yeah. pauses and the body language, the setup and the um, questions and the uh, way that the interviewee chooses to represent themselves uh, based on how they interpret the interview were to be represented all feed yeah. into what is discussed, how it's discussed and therefore would be present in some way or another in the transcript. And this paper points to practices of, uh, of, of reducing or cleaning up transcripts to remove pauses or to, you know, cut up um, and isolate moments for effect but they may not necessarily be the intended effect of the interviewee uh yeah you know it's context dependent obviously it depends on what you're discussing in a lot of this stuff but it does point out problems with interview formats um that are worthwhile um in going through right yeah i think um yeah, the, the 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 shift in my thinking that occurred reading this and listening to the the lectures was partly where you were talking about how obviously the fact that this data is being acquired in an interview context that it's being um, sort of created in collaboration with the with the interviewer and there's obviously features of the interviewer and in the context that are going to be affecting what's in the say an, an interview transcript. I think that the shift is it's not it the key is not to think about all of those things as like potential um confounds of the data to get outside of that quantitative paradigm of it's important that you don't that you look at the truth of this the truth contained in this transcript in the context of um who the who the researcher was and what time of day it was and that sort of thing um and interpreted that way, then you'll see the truth of it. It's that you shouldn't be looking to this interview transcript for that kind of truth at all. Like to establish what someone um, experienced or perceived may not, in a from a scientific perspective, may not be, be best served by a qualitative interview. 
because from from I guess from like a social scientific perspective, it's very difficult to assess how how valid that is. What it does present to you is how do people choose to describe their experiences in discussion with someone else in the context of an interview. Because I think he compares, he talks about um, uh, things like um, journalism quite quite frequently. And mm. what is the distinction between a qualitative research and something like journalism? Mm. In journalism, um, and like this is sort of what he's, when he's referring to the interview society, in the interviews that dominate so much of our of our culture, televisions, what most podcasts are, we accept that as like this is a pretty it's the a common sense way of what that person said. They said this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and what they experienced is what they said they experienced, mm. and why they did something is why they said they did it. You know, and that's our everyday way of getting around the world. There's nothing particularly wrong with that, mm. but I think it's kind of arguing for. Uh, the bar to be raised a little bit higher in qualitative research mm. and we don't not blindly but we don't just um, look look at what people have said and analyze it we look at what they've said in this particular time and place in collaboration with with someone else and don't treat it as some as a tool that's enabled us to read people's minds yeah that's right and i, I think that's um, quite a paradox that's a paradigm shift there it is, yeah. There's. I thought about um, other kinds of interviews as well, uh, particularly in the context of law, right? So, uh, expert mm. witness interviews, um, uh, defendant interviews. Uh, um, actually, we spoke about this a little bit. Uh, the Netflix program oh, Mindhunter. Oh, right? Mindhunter, yeah. yeah you, you're big on that. Don't I'm, get me started on Mindhunter. Oh, see, I'm not big on it. Didn't didn't tickle my fancy, uh, but part of that whole show and the premise of it is interviewing serial killers or sequence killers, mm. as the, they term them in the yeah. in this show, yeah. uh, and uh, that whole context and the process of interviewing killers is supposed to somehow give a glimpse into mm. the mind of the serial killer. That's an interesting example, actually. Yeah, because Mindhunter, for anyone who hasn't watched it, it's kind of it's fictionalized. It's a fictionalized account of the FBI coming up with the idea of interviewing people who've committed crimes That's to try right. and understand their mental state, to try to and to try to be able to build criminal profiles, to be mm-hmm. able to anticipate what people are like. And that has been, I believe, a valid project that has been from a uh, you know a law enforcement perspective been useful. They have been able to construct different sort of um, uh, I guess types of you know people who commit murders and things like that. Sure. And the more but you think about it, like this this method of establishing what people are thinking and feeling, that it's sort of used in every realm of life. Like this is what psychology or counselling is. People giving evidence in legal trials. Yeah. Um, people giving medical histories to doctors. Right. We rely on this format instinctively in you know in almost all of life as well as our personal interactions so i think it's i think that's partly why people instinctively rely on that when they come to qualitative research and it's a challenge to think what you could do um as an alternative to that right and i'll bring i'll I'll read something from the paper to tie it back in and then continue with the mind hunter um case yep so it says this is a quote most qualitative researchers still do not even consider using naturalistic data and or rephrasing their research question to focus upon social processes rather than individual states of mind. And they, end of quote, and they, they, they mention that because they are grappling with this same question about what uh, or can interviews and the interview format and using of questions really get at an individual's mind. Can it? Can they mm. reveal experience and perception, or and 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 you know translate them without transforming those uh, states? Can they get a, a, a accurate read on it? And so, in the case of uh, Mind Hunter, and you know. You've got this young rookie FBI dude who's trying to interview serial killers for the first time, and you know he's 
motivated to understand their motivations because they appear to have none from the outside. But what ends up happening is, you know, he goes, not really spoiler alert, so don't worry, people. He goes in to have these interviews with serial killers, and the serial killer will gladly tell them whatever they want to hear, will butter them up and, you know, trade information for advantage. Mm. They are clearly enjoying the act of receiving attention Mm. because they are perceived to be interesting Mm. and worth interviewing and they play with the whole mm. context of oh you want to know about me i'll tell you about me and in that way they Mm. control the narrative and what is being disseminated Mm. how it's being put out there to the point of the article the drama of the show is coming from the relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee it's not engaging just because of what they are saying but because of this it the context in which it is happening exactly. and the relationship that develops between the interviewer and the and the yeah. and the killer and none of that comes through when you put it to print on a page cut it out of context and implant it under a bunch of you know explanation about mm. what you say happened uh it it's one way to tell a story but is it necessarily a data informed uh, rigorous representation of what it is you c- conducted and what it is your uh, participants mm. or collaborators uh, introduced to the study, what they provided. And I think yeah. that, that's the situation that they're trying to course correct in the use of interviews in qualitative research, separate it from those other forms of interview formats that have different goals. They want to know, like, mm. in... And the same thing, like uh, another crime show, Netflix, uh, How to Make a Murderer. Was it Getting Away with Murder? Yep. Uh, How to Make a Murderer is the documentary. Making a Murderer. What's oh, the yeah. one with the yeah, kid? Making right? a Murderer he's is the like, documentary. You know, his uncle's been done for robbery or Yeah, murder, Making a Murderer. Of, yeah, that one. Making a Murderer. And so we know problems with leading questions. We know problems with... Uh, misinformation manipulation present in interactions the influence of perceived authority and expertise the set and setting of an interview uh, all influencing what is discussed what is included what is presented to the you know on the on the severe end of the scale to uh, false recollections to false confessions to um, to misinformed rememberings of whatever event the people themselves are interested in and it's those sort of settings where the outcome is like the data is what happened what did you see what did you hear what is yeah. your version of events and even within that you know context it's full of difficulty. It's fraught with it. Yeah. And so when we're trying to yeah. introduce into an academic setting, right, I want to understand your experience, your perceptions of the world. Talking to you is a way to get into your mind, apparently. So we're going to host and hold this conversation where I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to tell me something about your experience that I'll be able to understand and then incorporate into my write-up of whatever thing I'm interested in. And it's going to help because you're mm-hmm. going to provide that lived experience of whatever it is you've gone through and that's going to make my discussion of the topic more valid yeah yeah it's sort of it's presented as being very valid because i guess because it's an interview it's sort of it's the there's a couple of things so there's the he's he he points out in this and in the other article the way in which interview data has ascended as being um, considered more valid because of its ability to achieve depth and complexity and explore that that lived experience and that has partly come from these sort of trends within research of um, moving towards a like a like postmodernist post-structuralist research paradigms a lot of feminist research sort of structured around um, trying to uh, 
un- undermine this sort of objective authorial voice of the researcher and trying to um, produce research that is built out of you know uh, a range of different uh, voices that are given that are granted credibility within the research rather than that of the you know uh, I guess historically you know colonialist anthropologist or whoever it is that's observing them and that's um and that has he argues has contributed to the uh elevation of interview of interview data and then there's the other issue of what it is that we are now presenting this interview data as as revealing because when you, if we talk about, you know, there's obviously people have incomplete memories and people uh, present things through different lenses and things like that. And people might present things in a, you know, in a way that is self-justifying and all, and or self-flattering even. Um, the response can often be, well, we're not doing this in order to discover empirical details about what happened. Like, it's not a police interview. We're not trying to establish what people did when where and why we are trying to we're trying to explore their experiences and 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 perception so the fact that it's all coming through the subjective lens of the self and the uh, the limitations or just framings of their own mind that's not a problem that's the point of the yeah. data but i think there's this there's a third step there's a third category of what you could be trying to get in the interview which are things what he's arguing for which is it you you can't get because if you're if you want to explore people's perceptions and experiences that can be as uh quantitative as trying to look at anything else you're talking about i guess you're you're turning what is in their mind into discrete things of so their experience of this their perception of that and then you're going to have to try and sort of there's, there's a kind of substantialism inherent in what they're in what they're doing and so to um to sort of reify what's going on in their mind in these different compartments as these different things these different experiences and perceptions um then you need to be, then you are basically arguing that you have accurately um explored and described those things as much as if you were saying you'd accurately explored and described you know what they did yesterday and you know who who said what to who um so there's the additional thing you could be trying to do which is not how do they not how did they experience something but how do they report experiencing it to you so how do they and i've you know i've realized how much i was doing this in my um <laughs> interviews and it's a very easy habit to fall into because it's how most conversations are held you know and there's that sort of easy sort of psychologistic way of talking to fall into where i kind of realized how much my uh experience uh studying or just being interested in um well my experience of studying psychology and even interests in you know the um murkier areas of psychoanalysis can influence the the sure, way yeah. you try and interpret what people are saying and yeah, you look for meanings and you, happening there both sides of the fence yeah well you start you you it's hard you've got to stop yourself speculating on the structure of someone's mind and the impact of experiences right. on them and their other behaviors and you know abs- just complete um, speculation ultimately from a social scientific perspective mm. um but i've also found that i was doing i've there's a bit of that in my data, but there's also, I can also look at it through this lens that he is that he, he is talking about. For example, in my interviews with people who use drugs, the issue of um, agency comes up a lot, and when the people do and don't feel in control of their actions, and so it's that switching of the frame from, I don't have data that just that shows when people do and do not experience agency. I can't I can't tell that. I can't tell it from ethnographic observation. I can't tell it from a qualitative interview. But I can present you data on how people 
construct their and describe their experiences of being in and out of control when asked about it by me. Mm. And that's still very valuable because mm-hmm. you can that because that's a social process that uses different, you know, uh, models and tools to articulate their experience in dialogue and that is some and that is something that is you know valuable and less speculative mm. so that it's, was kind of yeah, the breakthrough a, i had from reading all a this question of epistemology it's epistemology i actually recall uh you and i had a conversation about a similar paper that uh was that was lost to the ether uh, that was similarly oriented. I thought about that as well. <laughs> Around interviews so, and conducting the them online episode. and how they, what we can and can't use them to say about people knowing or not knowing things. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's lots in there. I think one of the... Okay, know, we've got to explain it, that so just so people know there is an episode of the show that was never released. I still want to release it one day, but we basically had a very long discussion about an article which was... Looking back, probably one of these sort of quite uh, basic, quite psychologistic descriptions of some qualitative interviews. And I think the thing that we were going back on for about an hour was this distinction. Yeah, that's right. And eventually we got, and I think the point you were making was this is presenting it as a description of, um, it was a funny article. It was about how it was about how do people people who look after a relative with a chronic illness, um, how and when do they think that relative is um, sort of faking their symptoms or um, uh, pretending to be sicker than they are? So you know, inherently funny. But um, yeah, I think the point ultimately was this is just data about how people, what people will say they think or how people describe thinking about that not what's actually going on at the time. Indeed. So we don't have to release it now. <laughs> That's right. We come the problems saved of everyone that an hour. paper have been raised by this uh critique of mm. interview formats. Yeah. I think it, you know, interviews are a research tool which can be used for better or worse sure depending on how you treat the data produced and if you've got for for example so if you've got uh lengthy experience you know participant observation you've been observing some set of people and some practices for a while and you've also conducted interviews with them and if perhaps in that interview someone says something that represents and aligns with noted observations you know, perhaps you've got some count to them, perhaps you don't, but you're like, oh, this happens all the time, I see this, and this quote reflects and represents this phenomenon, this aspect of the practice very well. I feel like that's a that's a different thing, because it's mixed methods. You're using a quote to highlight observations mm. that help to represent what has been observed and studied in uh, in 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 a way that is not necessarily uh, claiming um, you're not putting all of the uh, weight on the interview data the quote, the quote yeah you're, sort you're of using it as I- illustrative rather than analytical exactly and and so you know if you did bugger all. Uh, observations and you just interviewed someone and they said something really interesting you're like oh this person said this so I'm just going to use that to support just this thing that I read about um, I f- I f- you'd probably be more likely to mm. enter into suspect territory than otherwise yeah and I think that's the other um, the other interesting point is if you're using interviews in the context of other kinds of data as well, mm. because I think the I think the important one of the most useful points I got out of this and from the lectures was just really posing the question of why do you want to do interviews? You know, I think when you're starting out on a on a on a project. Um, it's an important question to be asking, and I think the 
valuable thing that comes out of reading these papers is kind of kind of pointing out the thing that's so obvious you don't notice it which is how much of qualitative research has become interviews i think partly through that now sort of historical elevation of the value of interview data and the progression towards the interview society we live in which you know isn't necessarily a bad thing but that that preponderance of interviews has you know um swept through in into qualitative research Mm. and so now there's a tendency to think that's what interviews that's what qualitative research is is to do these qualitative interviews doesn't help the qualitative claim for rigor which is you know it always struggles it's on the back foot against charges of being less rigorous than quantitative studies and it is hard pressed to convince the rest of the academic institution that no 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 we can be rigorous and use this data to reveal aspects of the world that we're interested in learning more about but when they're done Mm. in poor ways it is fuel for the for the opposing team right and yeah well and being done in poor ways or just us being unclear on what it is we are trying to do or what it is we are capable of doing with our methods and i think the thing the the question to start with at the start of your project is what do i want to find out and then reverse and then you know engineer your methods from that don't start from i'm going to do a qualitative if you're a student i'm going to do a qualitative thesis or a qualitative project i guess i'll do 10 interviews about <laughs> something i like talking to people and i'm not really good with numbers so i'm just going to go ahead and do that yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's why i got into it but i think and that will be part of the maybe the way in which you know more and more people are doing are getting into research and doing theses and they get and there's a bit of a, a factory settings aspect to it where your factory settings qualitative project will be do 10 interviews, maybe less, and then do this kind of um, almost journalistic analysis of by picking out a few quotes. And it's, it's, not, it's, not, easy, it's not easy to do, but it's a, it's a simpler process and I think you probably wouldn't get picked up on it in the in the university, you know, because I think because it's so sort of accepted as a as as a method. I don't know what your experience was because we've both used ethnographic methods in addition to interviews, and I remember needing to um, justify the ethnographic component of my project. Are you Not talking about that in strenuously. Like the proposal or in the ethics or in yeah in the proposal and in the ethics and just in conversation with my supervisors because the yeah. question was well what will you get from the observation that you're not going to get from some interviews right. you know you, you have like interviews that's fine everyone's on board with that mm-hmm. ethics will understand that you know all your supervisors will get yeah that's that, that's what we do that's bread and butter for what quality right. of research is and anything in addition to that as well as it being more, which it is, more difficult or more complex, you are really starting from the ground up in terms of what that's going to provide that, you know, some lovely interviews won't. Mm. Um, And I know from reading some more of um, Silverman's work that he just really contextually, he puts interviews in in the wider context in a way that I hadn't really sort of felt, felt it before where interviews are a very specific and even niche kind of qualitative method you know within the broader social sciences and of the amount of questions we could be asking and things we could be trying to find out about quite a small number of them will be effectively addressed by an interview Mm. but that's just not the way i think they're seen at all they're seen as most of what there is to do and then you might do some document analysis or you might do some observation as well. Right. Or um, better yet, you know, we interviewed sort of 10 people and based on our algorithms, we were able to find that they all mentioned the word cat at least seven times. Therefore, cat yeah. is, <laughs> is pertinent to our understanding of this phenomenon. Yeah. Do a word cloud. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it yeah, this really made especially listening to his lectures it made me sort of reevaluate a lot of what I've what I've been thinking. Like he he really he doesn't like the idea of themes. Okay. You know, the idea is you go through your data and you pick out what the the themes or you construct themes from from the data. And I think this is a, a known as a direct quote. Basically what he said was um we do much more complex things in our interactions than are captured in the idea of themes. Hmm. You know, so the social processes, including in an interview, um, you should have to work quite hard to capture what is going on, which means doing more than figuring out what people said most often, you know. Right. And, and, and I think, yeah, and this is sort of what he was saying. I don't know if this is. I don't know if I said this or he said this. I'm just looking at my notes. But basically, it's there. the The difference would be, like, if I look through my data and I see there's a bunch of we talk about, you know, self control or willpower or different things a bunch of times. There's the qualitative question of that. There's the, the you could say the finding of is well. There is the theme of choice right. in my in my findings. So that's the theme. But there's not a lot of analytical content in that. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's mainly just descriptive. Mm-hmm. And so the the more sort of advanced qualitative question that's going to lead you to some, you know, actually interesting observation would be what is the description of choice doing in this particular place in the conversation? Right. So it's trying to find a way to talk about what someone has said without making suppositions about their internal mental state, mm. which can then become quite quite difficult to do without ascribing intentionality to someone or to try and just look at the conversation mm. as sort of an additional thing existing in the room and what do different words and sentences do to that as a as a structure. That's right. You know? Yeah. But No, I followed that. And I think that comes out somewhere in the paper uh he presents an example of a write-up that doesn't do so well at these things because it uses adjectives and uh, tries to, uh, in almost like a poetic descriptive way, tries to uh, create the context in verse or in prose or in you know the writing of the interview context. And, you know... It may have been moving or overwhelming or whatever other word we want to use to describe it, but mm. the act of writing that up and selecting a term, you're including your interpretation and you're constructing it in a way that you know the restrictions of our language uh, necessarily impose a choice upon how you're going to describe it and how the reader is going to interpret it based on yeah. things that you've included that the interviewee didn't necessarily mm. endorse or, or provide. Which is not to say you should try and do it in a more neutral way. Right. But that isn't it's that that isn't the thing you should be trying to describe at right. all. Right. You're trying to des- you shouldn't be trying to describe whether it was overwhelming for them or not. Yeah. Because you don't know and That's you right. can't know even though in our daily life we're pretty happy to say we know. Mm. And nothing too bad happens from saying that. But this is uh, this is science, MacArthur. <laughs> so. no, and I mean, on a real note, it is science. Science is mm. slow. Yeah. Interviews, mm. you can knock a few of them out relatively quickly in the time it can take to, you know, apply for ethics, recruit participants, run them through a procedure, analyze some data... You can talk to 12 folks about whatever topic and have yourself a whole swath of, uh, of, of so-called data mm. that you can cut up and use in all kinds of ways on your own mm. uh, to then inform whatever it is you want to write about. And it is one of those common, readily available techniques for science mm. that is appealing because it affords a kind of uh, uh, a way forward with a topic that often 
hangs outside of the ordinary means of other science. You're not having a book lab time. You're not having to wait for yeah. you know things to come through. You're out and talking to people who are the subject of your you know topic mm. of interest. Which would make it more appealing when you've got to do the whole thing in a semester or yeah, two semesters Definitely. as well. Yeah, and I and I think as well there would be so more broad, more broad to just sociological reasons about why interviews are so appealing as well. Because you know, I think there's a, there's a, I think there's probably a certain kind of glamour to it. Yeah, where you know, it, there's it's uh, flattering to be interviewed, and it puts you in a certain kind of position of power to be the interviewer yeah as well it's quite a nice feeling it makes sense in some way too because like you're interested in the topic it makes intuitive this person knows about that topic i'm going to go and talk to them about this topic why not just ask them about their experience and perception yeah what would be wrong with that and that's and there's and there's nothing wrong with that if you're writing a non-fiction airport book right you know if you're malcolm gladwell you can go and (laughs) you know just go and get, get get um, get people's yeah. perceptions of things, and that's and that's completely valid. And I think the only caveat I would put on all of this is, I think he's contrasting. He's saying that a lot of the things we are that are sought through qualitative research would be better sort through quantitative research such as people's perceptions and experiences but there is maybe that um middle ground where in order to explore things with a survey you need to have some idea of what categories to break it down into you know so if we're going to survey people on their experiences about something there is i think a realm of exploratory like qualitative description Mm. you know not very um you know you don't have to bring heidegger into it it's just a qualitative exploration of the kinds of experiences people have and then use that as your basis for more sort of uh quantitative investigation um but i think it's when it's that when that qualitative description is presented as the first and last step in terms of understanding a particular um topic characteristic yeah characteristic that people have that's when it's a problem mm. um and so i know we've got to wrap up pretty soon Indeed. um so I encourage people to check this paper out it's really affected my thinking about this really sort of basic and fundamental aspect of research and my phd so now i've got to try and find a way to make it sound like all of my interview data meets these criteria and this is totally what i was doing from the beginning so it should be fine should be fine and he and he does give these very interesting and practical recommendations which i have been incorporating um into how to um make uh, transcripts more naturalistic mm. like including the ums and the ahs and people cutting each other off um, in order to improve your ability to present data as interactional rather than just as these chunks of isolated text. And what else does he talk about here? Oh, I like the thing about not putting the description of each participant after their quote with particular identities into right. it where we go yeah Mary, subtle little things right white mother of three and just making the point of where does that yeah you've, you've um, chosen the come from you've chosen to identify yeah. portray them in a certain way that may yeah. not necessarily be the way that the person themselves would choose to represent themselves or what kind of a sort of a prelude to the transcript are you providing people if they mm. see mary mother of three and then the the, the presented transcript is of uh, whatever the topic is you know uh, mm-hmm. is their it, love of jogging yeah right is, is it just feeding into stereotypes or maybe another description would have been more relevant 
you know, maybe mm. Mary Mother of Three is also a physician and the stuff is about physicians' practices as being a mother, like, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, it's just about recognizing choices as a choice, indeed. isn't it? That's what so much of this work is. And I found, especially now writing a methodology chapter, trying to notice all the decisions you've made along the way that didn't <laughs> didn't realize they were decisions at the time mm-hmm. so that you can report them and explain yourself. Yeah. And is it is a great... Very difficult. It's the great uh, debate, I suppose, or the great conflict or challenge uh, of subjectivity and objectivity and uh, science pursuit of factual truth and exposing ever more aspects of reality and the qualitative camp is often parked out in the in the subjective realm because it addresses these kinds of questions in ways that acknowledges that they're only receiving a certain portion of the phenomena of the experience and topic uh, that has value in itself because it plays into real people's experiences in real places uh, but the criticism is often that, well, you know, these things aren't objective and they can't translate beyond their context. Some of these criticisms applies equally well to quantitative methods and sciences, particularly of the, you know, survey or observation techniques that assign counts to things as a way to uh, bypass any sort of charge of subjectivity because you're like, oh, no, no, it's not subjective. I counted it. That shit happened five times. That was an observed mm-hmm. empirical fact. It produces data that then we can analyze and calculate and reveal quantitative insight into the happenings of the world that we should yeah. hold in more objective esteem than, you know, whatever observations you've made over here because you know that wasn't rigorous and what it all is pointing towards sam is that i'm not sure we can never be free of our subjective shackles in our science and in the way we present and portray not only conduct and disseminate and write science because there's always a scientist the writer behind the scope with the pen typing away, making choices, putting it out into the world and hoping that people don't peer behind the curtain and see what fraught messes the whole show is. Yes, well, I think think it sounds like you're asking for a a section on uh, reflexivity in quantitative articles, which I don't think is going to happen. Well, I'm not sure I'm asking for that. Anytime soon. And... Yeah, I think that dis- that you know long-standing division between qualitative and quantitative, and one looks at this and one looks at the other. I think this perspective on qualitative research actually brings the two paradigms much closer together, because when you give up the task of what is basically the task of the psychoanalyst to investigate and describe the inner workings of an individual's mind. If you give that up and focus on the social processes that they are engaging with that you actually can observe and participate in, then your data becomes valid, becomes useful to someone other than the interviewee. And it actually does become more generalizable, you know. I think this is something I still haven't got this really figured out, but I think we should we should talk about generalization as a as a subject because yeah let's do that we talk about generalizability in quantitative research and there's all sorts of you know mathematical ways we try and establish that Mm -hmm. but it's absurd to say that we don't want our qualitative research to be generalizable Mm -hmm. because if it's not then what's the what's the point of it obviously it's going to be generalizable in a slightly different way Mm. but i think that's what this this paper is sort of getting towards like for example if i just presented a sort of psychological analysis of my my participants uh, you know speculating on what's going on inside their minds that's not useful to anyone other than them and their loved ones basically you know that's that is the work of this of of the psychologist but 
refocusing it in this way in almost a more it's not, honest not objective but slightly more positive is it positivist as because he describes it as constructionist basically because you you're presenting everything as being a co-construction between different people but there's a at least slightly positivist um speculation that there's a social process here that is real and sh- can be described here and applied in other places and so i think that's a really interesting blurring of these of these distinctions uh which draws qualitative research more into that into that camp of if not objectivity at least generalizability and should also draw quantitative research more into a realm where it can be more uh criticized as as you were as you were saying and um understood as a also you know contingent and socially constructed uh process which i think is a lot of what um evidence making interventions is kind of getting at but we need to do another episode on that yeah if we've done some more reading (laughs) (laughs) i thought about that the whole way through i was going to mention a few interesting overlaps but then i was like oh that's right no absolutely people i I refer people to our wonderful episode on evidence making interventions and and the sequel to it which will be coming up where we'll really nail it on the head we'll get there all right cool beans bro i've got a cruise but that was a cool. All right. good episode. Good chat. Well, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at, at our podcast or send us an email at the best email address in the world at al.phdpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, there's also going to be a link below to our Patreon account upon which we will be putting some bonus content very, very soon. Content. And, um, yeah, because that's that's what life is all about now isn't it no it's not about it's not it's about community macarthur that's what i realized you know talking about the value of living your life without an audience indeed it's about distinguishing between audience and community and community is not only more meaningful but it's a much more flattering way to describe the incredibly small number of people that listen to our podcast so i appreciate I that people view. with that yeah mm. yeah isn't that nice <laughs> that is nice just talking to our friends. Yeah. All right. Well, farewell, See you friends. next time, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, both of you.